Take your Bibles this morning. We're going to turn open to the Gospel of Matthew as we continue our way through that Gospel. And this morning, Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 41, and we'll go through Matthew chapter 23, verse 12. You'll remember we touched on the uh, verses there in Matthew at the end of Matthew chapter two, 22 last week, so we'll just touch on them again this morning and spend most of our time thinking about chapter 23, verses 1 through 12. Chapter 22, verse 41 is where we'll begin. And let's pray one more time before we come to God's Word. Father, even as we just sung, so we now also pray that You would speak to us. Oh, may it not be the personality in this pulpit, may it not be my voice, May it not be the voices in our heads this morning from this past week, or the voices in our head trying to speak to us about the week to come. May it not be the concerns later this day that occupy our thoughts. But in these next moments, may it be your voice that we hear as you speak your word of truth to us. And may we know that we have heard from you, the living God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 22, verse 41 through chapter 23, verse 12. This is the holy and errant word of God. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did any dare to ask him, any more questions. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven." Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen.
Nothing matters more in life than who you follow. Nothing matters more in life than who you follow. Who do you follow? Remember these past few weeks, the Pharisees and the scribes have been coming to Jesus to seek to entrap Him, and they are seeking to entrap Him for a reason. It's because they feel threatened. They feel threatened as leaders. They have the Jews following them, and they are threatened because they see that as Jesus preaches and teaches as one with authority, that people are beginning to look to Him and follow Him. And so as self-serving leaders, they are seeking to entrap Him. We've seen, and I want to look at this passage this morning through four points. The honor of the Messiah, the honor of office, the hubris of hypocrisy, and the honor of humble holiness. So the honor of the Messiah, the honor of office, the hubris of hypocrisy, and the honor of humble holiness. They have felt threatened by Jesus, and they have asked Him their questions to seek to entrap Him, and now Jesus is turning the tables on them. He asks them a question, and His question comes from this prophecy in Psalm 110 about the Messiah, the Christ who is to come. This Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament passage in all of the New Testament. And it's the most quoted because it's regularly recognized by the Jews of the day that this was a prophecy about the Messiah to come. And so Jesus asks the question about this Messiah. He says this, he says, David in the Spirit calls Him Lord, saying, and then he quotes this Psalm 110. If you were to flip over to Psalm 110 and you were to look at what Jesus is doing, Jesus is making a theological point from the superscription that actually precedes Psalm 110. That's fascinating. You remember a couple of weeks ago I was pointing out to you that Jesus believes that the Word of God is breathed out by God, that it is inspired and that it is inerrant, down to the very verb tense He would make an argument. Well, now He is making an argument based upon the superscription. We know that that psalm was written by David because of the superscription that precedes the psalm. And He's going to make a theological argument based upon that. Jesus believes in the inerrancy of the Scripture. He believes that they are inspired by God. So he says, David said in the Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, that is, Yahweh, the name for God, Yahweh, the Lord, said to the Lord, meaning the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now here's the question. David refers to this Christ, this Messiah, as my Lord. How can that be? Now, it makes perfect sense that, Jesus, that David would refer to Yahweh as, as his Lord. 
Yahweh is Lord. But he says that Yahweh says to my Lord, meaning the Christ. And how could David be calling the Christ my Lord? Now you have to think like a Jew would think coming to this text. First of all, David is the ancestor. He's the father. Because of the Davidic covenant, we know that the Messiah would come forth from the descendants of David. There would be one who would sit on the throne that would come after him. But the son always shows honor to the father. The father doesn't show honor to the son. But even more importantly in a Jewish mind, you have to think, he's speaking of of David here. David is calling someone his Lord. David is the great king. Now you and I, immediately when we think of the Christ or the Messiah to come, we think of Jesus. But in David's mind, he's calling this Christ to come, my Lord. And David's the great king. What do you do with that, Jews? He's showing honor to this Messiah. How can that be, Pharisees, you experts of the law? And these experts of the law, they have no expert opinion on this. They're silenced. They don't recognize the authority of the Messiah in the text, and they don't recognize the authority of the Messiah that is right before their face. Why does David call the Messiah Lord? Because the Messiah pre-exists Him, and the Messiah outranks Him. That is, the Messiah is eternal, and the Messiah is divine. And that's why David calls him my Lord. He's deserving of all honor. You'll notice over these weeks that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes, these teachers of the law, they have a very low view of Jesus. But God the Father could not have a higher view of Jesus. Psalm 110 says that He seats Him at His right hand. He enthrones Him and He is making all of His enemies a footstool beneath His feet. He gives Him the place of honor and glory over all things. So that leads Jesus to turning at this point in the Gospel. The Pharisees, the scribes, they've had their opportunity with Him. He has rebuked them time and again. He has shown them Himself and the authority that He has time and again. He's even evidenced it that the words that He speaks are not just idle words, that He even accompanies these with miracles that testify of His authority. And they still continue not to see Him as the Christ and as the Messiah, as this promised King to come. And so now Jesus is going to turn the tables and He's going to point out their hypocrisy. But first, He wants to point out to the Jews of the day that they should honor the office that these Pharisees hold and these teachers of the law hold, even as they were meant to honor His office as the Christ. He says of the Pharisees, He says this, Do and observe whatever they tell you. Now why do and observe whatever the Pharisees tell you? The clause before gives the reason. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you. That is, 
Even as the Messiah fills an office, so these Pharisees, these teachers of the law, they fill an office. We know from history and archaeology that if you had walked into a synagogue at this time, that if you had walked into what we would label as the sanctuary today, that there would have been a stone seat up front in the very front of the synagogue. And that stone seat was considered the seat of Moses. And it was there that a Pharisee or a teacher of the law would sit upon that seat and would read the law and would interpret the law. And so Jesus is saying they occupy that seat. But maybe even more so, it's the idea throughout the Old Testament that when someone occupies the seat of so-and-so, that person takes over the responsibility of so-and-so. And so they are those who are occupying the seat of Moses. And they are deserving of honor. The title Pharisee even alludes to this. They are the separated ones. Or it means that they are the specifiers. Those who kept specific commands of the law. The Pharisees were teachers of the law. They sat in Moses' seat. They possessed a kind of office. And so you do what they tell you, Jesus says. And yet... It's not like Jesus is naive. He knows these men, and He knows that the office doesn't make the man. And He knows that they are stained with sin, and that they are hypocrites to the core. And so He commands, do whatever they tell you, but do not do the works they do. He tells us in verse 3, for they preach, but do not practice. And even worse, verse 4, they tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and they lay them on people's shoulders. They are big talkers, but they are small walkers. They preach, but they didn't practice. Does that mean that they are to be given no respect? No, Jesus says. They're to be respected, listened to, even obeyed in what they teach. Jesus desires the people to observe what they told them, but not what they showed them. Respect because of their position. Respected, but not followed. We get a glimpse of this in the life of the Apostle Paul too, where he does the same thing, shows respect. In Acts 23, there is that account where he is before the Roman Council and there as well are the Pharisees and the, the priests and the scribes. And Paul is brought in and he is to make a defense for himself. And he says in front of all of these people, he says, my conscience is clear. And the high priest is there. And the high priest says to whoever is nearest Paul, strike him on the mouth. And so the person hauls off and whacks Paul across the mouth. And Paul erupts with, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. And some of the people in the room say, do you know who you are speaking to? How dare you speak to the high priest that way? And Paul's response is this, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it's written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. 
He recognized he was to honor the position even if the man himself was a scoundrel. Now, some will take Acts 23 and that account of Paul, and they will take this account that we're looking at this morning here in the, the Gospel of Matthew with Jesus, and they'll say, both of these accounts, the people are being sarcastic. Paul's being fully sarcastic, and Jesus is being fully sarcastic. But I don't think that's the case. Paul quotes Scripture. He says, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. It's the straightforward meaning of the text. The straightforward meaning of the text with Jesus here is do what they tell you to do. Don't imitate what they do. It'd make very little sense if we said this whole thing is sarcastic because then he would be telling us not to observe the law. No, the office is honored, even if those who sit in it are dishonorable. But let's make clear what Jesus is saying here. Their teaching was to be obeyed when it was according to the teaching of Moses, that is, the Word of God. But regardless, they were not to follow their lives. Follow their words, not their works. Jesus is saying. My friends, be careful who you follow. Be careful who you follow. It has an incredible molding effect upon you, upon me. When Jesus calls his disciples, what does he say? He says, come, follow me. When he speaks about discipleship, what does he say? He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and pick up his cross daily and follow after me. There's a conforming that happens in following. We're meant to follow, and so people are prone to follow. The Pharisees and the scribes, they understood this, and that is why they feel so very threatened, is because people are going to follow someone, and they see people beginning to follow Jesus. And for self-seeking leaders, that's a problem. Over the years, I've uh, been in a number of conversations with people where they are bemoaning and Lamenting the fact that we have a kind of celebrity culture in evangelicalism. And, and I, I mourn with them in some regards. I think in many respects there are ill effects of that. There are bad outcomes from that, that we have celebrity preachers, and we have celebrity teachers, and we have celebrity pastors, and we have celebrity authors, and we have celebrity musicians, and we have celebrity theologians. And yet, in another sense, I know that people will follow people. There will always be leaders, and there will be people that follow them, and there will be leaders among leaders. It's just part of our human nature. We follow So be careful who you follow. Why does Jesus not want the people to follow these Pharisees? Well, our third point, the hubris of hypocrisy. 
hubris or pride of hypocrisy. These men, they are leaders. There is no doubt about it, but they are leaders who are hypocrites. Their pursuit of the law is simply theater. They make a great show of holiness because they wanted others to think them holy. Here is a rule. If a man who calls, if a man calls attention to himself, that's a man that is serving self. And they are doing it over and over and over. The more others recognize their devotion, the better their devotion seemed to be. And Jesus says it manifests itself in three ways with them. I want to look at three ways that their hypocrisy shined forth here in the text. There is the hypocrisy of honor. The hypocrisy of honor. Now, giving honor, as we just saw, in religion is a thing that can be good. Jesus has pointed that out about the Messiah. But seeking honor in our religion is quite another thing. And that's what they're doing. And Jesus provides a laundry list here of their showy activities. They make their phylacteries broad. These were leather bands that would be tied around the arm or tied around the head that would have little boxes upon them. And in those boxes would be pieces of parchment paper where they would write different verses from the Torah or from the law in them, and they would sit in these boxes on them, and they made their brands, their bands awfully broad so that everybody could see theirs. They wore long fringes on their robes, Jesus says. These were tassels at the end of their garments that would remind them to pray and to observe the law. Theirs were especially long so that people would see them. To honor them. They loved to receive the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue. They loved the greetings of people gave them in the marketplace and being called rabbi or teacher. Oh, there goes holy Elihu. Greetings, rabbi. And they loved that. They lived for the applause of others. They sought honor. That's hubris. That's pride, and that's hypocrisy. What we are in private is what we are. May our public persona never be better than our private persona. As the Puritans used to say, may our public religion not be more demonstrable than our private religion. May we not speak a better word than we live according to the word. This is one of the reasons that you want to follow those who are local. We live in a digital age. It is a great blessing. It is a great blessing. That we live in a digital age and you can access and listen to some of the best preachers and some of the best teachers and some of the best theologians that our generation has to offer. And please do. I hope you do. 
But there's a reason that you and I can't live stream from our homes for the rest of the duration. We have to enjoy embodied worship together. We have to see community lived out together. We have to see our leaders live before us. It is awfully easy to be a hypocrite from afar. It's much more difficult to be a hypocrite up close. And so we have to model before each other what it looks like to live for Christ. We've seen this in recent days, recent weeks. It's quite easy to live a hypocritical life from afar. Next, you'll notice the hypocrisy of heaping heavy burdens. Jesus says they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Hypocrisy always expects more from others than we expect from ourselves. Always. And this is often in the realm of what the hypocrite finds success in. What we're good at, we will expect a lot from in the lives of other people. What we're not good at, we won't expect much from the lives of other people in. This is just the way of hypocrisy. This is just the way of fallen hearts. What we are most passionate about and what we want to see people uphold is what we're good at. So these Pharisees, they, they believed in the tithe. My goodness, were they passionate about the tithe. Jesus says they would tithe even down to the dill and down to the mint. They would tithe everything. And they would enforce it among the Jews. If you were a Jew and you came across a Pharisee, he was passionate to you about the tithe. But not about mercy. Because they weren't good at mercy. It's just as much part of the law, show mercy, but they weren't good at mercy. So they weren't very passionate about mercy. The pride of thinking highly of self and lowly of others, it always weighs down those around us. And it always lifts us up. Does this mean that we don't condemn error where we see it? No, Jesus is doing that here. But it does mean that we're slow to do so. It does mean that we're first to examine ourselves. It does mean that we give the judgment of charity where we can to others. It does mean that we dare not speak to make ourselves look good. It does mean that we seek to relieve the burdens of others and not add to the burdens of others. It leads to the next. Hypocrisy of glorying in titles. He walks through a list in this text, rabbi, teacher, father, instructor. Now, titles are not bad in and of themselves. They're used throughout the New Testament to speak of leaders and teachers in the church. If we were just simply to take this 
title of father here. You'll see in Paul that he calls Titus his own son in 1 Corinthians 4-5. He calls Timothy his beloved son in the faith in 1 Timothy 1-2 and 18. And in 2 Timothy 2-1, he does the same. He's implying that he is the father of Timothy and Titus. He'll, in fact, even say as much in 1 Corinthians. He'll say in 1 Corinthians 4-5-15, I became your father through the gospel. So showing respect with the use of names is not wrong. The issue in Jesus' mind is not the title, but the self-seeking attitudes of those who want to be called those titles. They desired this. So Jesus is telling the Jews, don't call them this. Don't give in to it. It's a seeking of glory in titles. So two warnings here, one to followers and one to leaders or would-be leaders. First, the warning to followers. Ah, please remember that your pastors, preachers, elders, to be respected, that's right, Jesus points out, do the office, you honor, but you don't adore too much. And you surely don't worship. And because of their office, and because of their position, because of my office, because of my position, you should be testing it. Does he practice what he preaches? And if not, you have a highway to call me on it. We're all sinners. We're all fallible. None of us has arrived. So you follow godly people, but you always remember that they are also sinners. So the warning here is also to those who seek to be teachers and leaders in the church. The desire is good if it's for the right reasons. Paul says that to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3. He says the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. There, there's a right aspiring to that title. Paul says it's admirable. Is it wrong to desire the office? But it can be wrong. Paul, after saying that it is a good thing to aspire to the office of elder. He, he then immediately, though, he doesn't begin speaking about the gifts of the man. What he immediately goes into is he says, but let that man be above reproach. And then he begins listing all the characteristics of that man. They are all character qualities. Why? This is someone that would be a leader in the church. There's nothing more damaging to the church than false teachers and leaders. Those who hold the office for the sake of glorying in the title and glorying in self, they slay God's people with burdens. That's why Christ over and over throughout the Gospels, He reserves His greatest condemnation for false teachers and for hypocrite leaders. Because they slay God's people. They heap heavy burdens upon them and weigh them down when their responsibility is to care for them and shepherd them and help lift them up. 
So there's warning for us here. We've seen a number fall in our circles in recent years. And I always have two thoughts. When uh, someone falls that uh, is noted in the church or has just been a brother pastor of mine or brother elder of mine or brother teacher of mine, I have two thoughts. The first one immediately is, oh, I feel so sorry for those people that sat underneath him. What pain. And the second thought that comes immediately with it, oh, I am so sorry for him. Because with great responsibility, if you fail in it, there is great judgment. And oh, it will be great. That leads to our final point. The honor of humble holiness. The honor of humble holiness. Those who are to follow are the least likely to seek a following. Those who you should want to follow are those who are the least likely seeking a following. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. There's the principle, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Then the warning, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And then the promise, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Humble holiness is the greatest mark of the greatest Christians. Jesus says, if you would be my disciples, pick up your cross daily and follow me. It's the path of humility. The world laughs at this path. It's contrary to how you achieve things in the world. But it's the road to fruitfulness in the kingdom because it's the well-traveled path of our Christ. I wonder... I'm seriously asking you to contemplate with me. I ask myself as well. I wonder how often do we, do we pray about being more humble? How often does that occupy yours and my prayers? And that that's the path of discipleship. How often do you and I plot how we might grow in humility and become more humble. Where we plot where, you know what, I'm going to try and serve others more and I'm going to do it in a way that no one sees. How often do you and I plot that? Compared to how often we plot People need to hear this that I'm passionate about. i got to get this agenda before people. I need this seat at the table. I need my voice to be heard. I wonder how often. I say it to you, I say it to me. Humility seems weak. It seems counterproductive. It seems wrong. 
but it's right because it's the way of Jesus. There was an interesting story this week about the royal family of Great Britain. I know many of you think, well, we fought a revolution so we don't have to hear about the royal family of Great Britain. Uh, I, I resonate much with that sentiment, I understand. But you have to admit they're fascinating. There is some fascinating parts about them. But you may have seen in the news this week that Prince Harry and his American wife, Meghan, that they decided that they would step away from the work of the royal family. And so the Queen of England came out with a letter, a statement, where she said that their stepping away meant that she was taking some of the offices that she had doled out to them back. So Prince Harry, for example, was the Captain General of the Royal Marines. And so, because he chose to step away, the queen said that she is taking back that office, that position, Captain, Captain General of the Royal Marines, and that it, it reverts back to her so that now she can pass it out to another family member. And after her letter came out stating this, Harry and Meghan sent out their own statement as a kind of pushback. And they said, we can all live a life of service. Service is universal. And all the uproar in Great Britain. Crumpets were burned. Scones were burned. Biscuits were burned. Tea was spilled. Because as article after article said, you don't speak back to the queen. become almost flippant to say it today, but it's true. We're all on the same level ground at the cross. We're all on the same level ground at the cross. May we never make disciples of ourselves, only of Christ. And when you're looking for men and women to follow, don't necessarily follow those who are the loudest. Not necessarily those that are the most visible. Follow those who are marked by humble holiness. That's who you want to follow. Jesus says we have one instructor. And He says it's the Christ Himself. Leaders in the church are always to point others to God and to our Christ. If they don't, they aren't a good leader. Don't follow them. Because He is the great teacher. We know that even as He is instructing us here in this text, that He says this not as a, a preacher who doesn't practice. These aren't idle words. From our Savior. As he talks about humility before exaltation, as he talks about suffering before exaltation, as he talks about making ourselves nothing, he knows that even as he teaches these things, he is journeying to the cross, the cross, and the greatest single act of humble holiness the universe has and will ever see. Jesus speaks about the greatest among you shall be your servant and humility before exaltation. He knows what lies before Him. He does not speak idle words. 
practices what he preaches. He walks as he talks. And you and I are to follow him down the path of humble holiness. You see, this takes us all the way back to the very beginning of our passage, doesn't it? Psalm 110. Why is it that the path of humble holiness is the path of the disciple? It's because we have a Lord. Yahweh said to my Lord, I will make your enemies a footstool beneath your feet. We have a Lord who sits enthroned above. There's not room for two on that throne. It can't be David and Christ. It can't even be Moses and Christ. It can't be me and Christ. And it can't be you and Christ. It's Him. The Pharisees have no answer to the question that Jesus asked them. They have no answer for this reason. Because it makes too many demands upon them. And they don't want to give it up. you and I know. We know the answer to the question, how is it that David calls him Lord? How is he his son? Because he's the eternal divine Messiah. And it's him. It is him. It's him. That we seek to glorify and we seek to exalt and we seek to honor. Let's pray. Our Father God, we give you glory this morning. And we give glory to the Son who you have seated at your right hand forevermore. We're thankful, Lord Jesus, that you reign on high, that you are our Lord. Oh, may we look to you with adoration and praise. May we seek your glory with all of our lives. May we not make disciples of ourselves, but disciples of you. And may our lives be lived as a living sacrifice to you. Giving you all the glory and the honor and the praise that is due your name. For you have that name that is above all names. We give you praise. In Christ's name, amen.